I once saw Mitchell Johnson at his most terrifying. It was the first test in Perth, Australia versus South Africa in December 2008. It's almost as though players like that sniff blood in the water. Stuart Broad is another. They circle and circle and in they come. Welcome to the Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred and welcome to the show. Every fast bowler possesses a sound, or perhaps more accurately evokes a sound. This is why Michael Holding with his easy, scythe-like grace was called Whispering Death. For me, Jimmy Anderson evokes the sound of a rubber band being extended to its fullest before being snapped back. Both Alan Donald and Brett Lee call to mind a ball bearing, rolling with gathering speed inside a groove or an iron rail. All these images and sounds are relatively easy to evoke. Think also of Shoaib Akhtar's slightly shambolic attack of the crease with hair everywhere, like a crow flapping frantically as it takes off. But Mitchell Johnson's music is more difficult to describe. Finally, Johnson evokes something harshly mechanical. With that jumpy, immensely powerful action, he was a pistons and levers kind of guy. I hear him as a nut and bolt hammering into a soft brick wall. On his day, he must have been absolutely terrifying. I once saw Johnson at his most terrifying. It was the first test in Perth, Australia versus South Africa, in December 2008. After his skipper, Ricky Ponting, won the toss, Simon Kattish watched Australia slump to 15 for 3 before grinding out 83, an innings that allowed for the more expressive talents of Michael Clarke, 62, Brad Haddon, 46, and Andrew Simons, 57, down the order. The Aussies posted 3.75, scored at marginally under 3.8 runs per over, with Mackay and Tini, the engineer of the early breakthrough in removing Matthew Hayden and Ponting, taking 4 for 72. In reply, the Proteas lost Neil McKenzie early to Johnson, but there were few hints of the mayhem to follow as Graham Smith and Hashim Amla rattled along at over four runs per over for a 90-run second-wicket partnership before Smith was snuffled by, well, Johnson, who went round the wicket and bowled him. Smith wasn't a player who got bowled very often, but still there weren't too many signs that Johnson was going to launch the South Africans back into the dressing room from which they had just come, like a giant tossing surfs over a castle wall. Jacques Cullis and A.B. de Villiers, batting at four and five respectively, chipped away at the Aussie total through the second afternoon, with de Villiers fourth out in the 71st over for 63. The total was on 2-3-4. Miraculously, given that he had bowled all day up until then, Johnson was still running in with all the strength of a prize bull. The pitch was still excellent for batting, and although the ball was 70 overs old, it wasn't reversing. It was simply blinding pace, what Paul Harris, shitting himself down the order, called Johnson's Thunderbolts. After de Villiers went with a total on 2-3-4, Wickets fell to Johnson with a total on 2-3-7, Cullis for 63, 2-3-8, J.P. Dumini for 1, 2-4-1, Mornay Morkel for 1, 2-4-1 again, Harris for a duck, the South Africans finishing the day dazed and confused on 2-4-3 for 8. 
De Villiers and Smith came to that evening's press conference. De Villiers' eyes were as big as saucers, as though he just witnessed some bloody accident in the middle of the road. Smith spoke of wicked undercut. They tried to bluster it out, but you could see they'd been on the receiving end of something traumatic, something a few post-play beers weren't going to soften the memories of any time soon. In the interview for this podcast, Harris said that he spooned one up to leg gully off Johnson as the Australians experimented with short-pitched bowling and leg theory to the tail-enders. Quote, he was bowling pretty quickly, says Harris of Johnson. There weren't many characters that could keep me awake at night, but he was one. It's almost as though players like that sniff blood in the water. Stuart Broad is another. They circle and circle and in they come. With a 94-run first innings lead, it was nip and tuck throughout the Australian second innings. At one point they dawdled to 88 for four, but Haddon played in innings of mischief for 94, seven fours and four sixes, as the innings ended up on 319, three for 24 to best bowler Cullis. Harris stresses that this was a good batting deck throughout, but after Johnson's eight for 61, there was a tug of unacknowledged fear in the South African dressing room. It was tempered by self-belief, the two holding each other in slightly unstable equilibrium. What a test this was turning out to be. The South Africans had just won a test series in England, and Harris says that on reflection, their series just before that in India should also have been won. This was a mature, battle-hardened team. They needed 414 batting last to win, and the arrival of rain wasn't an option. Perth hadn't seen a drop of it in months. Many of the players had been waiting for this test all of their careers. Mackenzie went early in the South Africans' reply, falling cheaply to Johnson yet again, but Umla and Smith battered through the Saturday afternoon. Flags on the vintage scoreboard flapped and whipped in the Fremantle doctor. Beerworms slunk through the crowd. They shouted. They sang. They went red in the sun. Smith who lived for dramatic occasions such as these, was the more attacking of the two, with Amla content to play second fiddle. They reached a hundred and a hundred and fifty, before Smith went to a priceless fighting hundred, leg before to Johnson, Johnson's tenth wicket of the match. Seven runs later and Amla was out, caught behind by Haddon of Lee. And de Villiers strode in to join Cullis. It wasn't an entirely comfortable last hour, but both were there at the end. Cullis on 33, de Villiers on 11. South Africa's overnight score was indecently respectable, 227 for 3. Yet few other than the team believed in the possibility of victory. I certainly didn't. The new ball was only 16 overs away, and I fully expected that Johnson, fresh after an ice bath, a few beers and a good dinner, would return revitalised after a good night's sleep to blow the South Africans away. I suspect the rest of the small South African press contingent did too. Deep in their secret hearts, they thought that Johnson the blood sniffer would get a taste after an early wicket and do what he had done in the first innings. It was all too easy to see. South Africa had suffered under the hard boot of mercilessly talented Aussie sides for years. The Warns, the Wars, the McGraths. So that was our contextual frame. The batting on the Saturday afternoon was just a delaying of the inevitable. In my mind's eye, I imagined a relaxed Sunday lunch back at my inner city hotel with maybe a wander through the streets of Perth later 
as I weighed up the pros and cons of a very good South African site finally not being quite good enough. In the mythology of this tour, the unassuming behind-the-scenes role of Duncan Fletcher, recruited temporarily by the South African coach Mickey Arthur, has taken on great significance. He had coached England to victory in the 2005 Ashes, and his first-hand experience was seen by Arthur and Smith to be vital. Quote, For some reason, Duncan speaks my language, says Harris, adding that the two of them went back to Harris's early days, when he was just out of fishhook high and working in a nightclub on Saturday nights, before catching a couple of hours sleep in his car, before playing club cricket on the Sunday. Fletcher, a man who refined his dislike of Australians to the level of a personal crusade, was important for Harris on the temperamental side of things. Harris says that he wasn't the weakest link in the South African side, but was just perhaps one of the weaker links. Fletcher helped sharpen Harris's self-belief. Just before the Perth test, a nurse in a local hospital had cut Harris's thumb so badly in removing the plaster from a break sustained back in South Africa that he needed stitches. That's Aussie for you, even the nurses wear the baggy green. Harris had been mauled in the warm-up game at the Wacker before the test, going for about 100 in his 10 overs if his memory serves, and his confidence was plunging by the delivery. Starting the fifth day, the equation was this. South Africa, with seven second innings wickets standing, needed 187 runs to win the test. If they did so, they would be only the second South African side since readmission to win a test down under, that honour falling to Kepler Vessels' side in 1993. The Australians, for their part, hoped that Johnson, the Pistons and Levers guy, could wring one final spell from his aching frame. He had taken a flurry of wickets in the visitors' first innings with a comparatively old ball. With the new ball due shortly and much of the fifth day's play still left, they remained hopeful that he could repeat his antics, although this had to be balanced by the fact that Jason Crazier, their off-spinner, hadn't threatened for the entire test. If Ponting wanted a fifth bowler, he would need to turn to the left-arm clerk when giving Johnson, Lee and Peter Siddle a rest. Everyone assumed that Cullis was key for South Africa. He resumed on 33 and picked his way carefully through the minefield of the first hour. As he did so, however, assumptions needed to be cast aside. De Villiers, resuming on 11, outscored him. When mid-morning drinks were taken, South Africa on 2-8-1 for 3, De Villiers was already on 41, having scored 30 runs in the half session. Cullis had scored 18. The second new ball was taken directly after drinks, Johnson bowling quickly. In his third over after the break, he induced Cullis into a rash shot, Mike Hussey catching him in the gully for 57. The Proteas now 303 for 4. So here we were. The South African scribes thought as one. The collapse was happening again. Different innings, same story. We'd been lulled into a false sense of security through the fourth afternoon. The new ball would be clarifying and South Africa, for all their courage, would head to the Boxing Day test at the MCG 1 test down. J.P. Dumini, the Western Province left-hander, was next in. He was on debut, having scored one in the first innings, so we all knew what that meant. There was an air of inevitability about it now, wasn't there? Recent cricket history was about to repeat itself. After Dumini, Boucher, and after that the Rabbits, led by Morkel. 
Fletcher had been working hard in the Wacker nets with the tail-enders, so too had Boucher, with more menace than the ageing Duncan. Quote, he can be a nasty piece of work, says Harris of Boucher, in a way that isn't entirely complimentary. When he hits that Slazenger ball at you with a tennis racket in the nets, it bruises, it doesn't break. I think he sort of likes it. De Villiers didn't seem to be in the least perturbed by Cullis' departure. Neither did Dumini, for that matter, so sweet an off-driver that he seems like a pool-hall hustler, forever potting the red ball into the far pocket with a chalky funk of his cue. De Villiers had gone to his 50 shortly before Cullis' departure and, at lunch, with South Africa on 3.22 for 4, he was on 66 not out. Ominously, South Africa had scored 95 runs in the session and de Villiers had scored 55 of them. I'm part of a maddening breed, the occasional social or circumstantial smoker. That afternoon, with South Africa climbing towards the victory target, I cadged a cigarette from one of the obliging Aussie scorers. There was an outside balcony just off the press box and I picked my way onto it guiltily to smoke my fag. Who should I find there? none other than old J.L., Justin Langer, who is between stints as a commentator on Australian television and getting some fresh air. J.L. mumbled something indistinct to the slightly false cheer of my greeting, his response telling me in no uncertain terms that this was no time for idle chatter. I looked across at Langer as I took a drag on my cigarette. Yes, I wasn't mistaken. J.L. was vibrating. I could see the intensity radiate out of his head, like the heat waves you see in the distance on a desert road. I knew JL was a pretty intense guy. Hell, I can be a pretty intense individual myself, but vibrating? All because AB was cheerfully going about scoring a hundred and Australia were about to lose a test match? JL, lad, get a fucking grip. Well, Australia did lose the test match. Dumini played his secondary role to perfection as de Villiers closed in on his century. Mid-afternoon drinks were taken with a total on 3-6-2 for 4, de Villiers on 88 not out, and the Johnson threat never materialised. I would have loved to have heard how JL coped with the South African victory over in the Channel 9 commentary booth, but I was too busy coping with the win myself. We all were. There was a guilty tug to my pleasure, for I hadn't believed. Not really. Shame on me. For the record, de Villiers scored 106 not out to pick up what in those days was still quaintly called the Man of the Match Award. Playing like de Villiers had before he went into his shell in the approach to his 100, Dumini was not out on a roundly comforting 50. South Africa lost only one wicket all day. After the size of de Villiers' marmoset eyes at the press conference on the Thursday night, this was a remarkable comeback. For all I know, Justin Langer might still be vibrating. Although, maybe all memory of the loss does nowadays is to inspire a random growl. The story of the Perth Test is only a chapter in a bigger book. A book that tells the sad tale of South Africa's slow test decline ever since. You can tell that story in long maze-like sentences reminiscent of Marcel Proust. Or you can tell it simply by the number of centuries scored by the test team during that golden age compared to what they've done in the last five years. Between 2008, when the Perth test took place, and 2012, when South Africa won their most recent series win in England, 
The South Africans scored 72 centuries in 47 tests spread across the five years, an average of roughly 1.8 centuries per test. Their average of 1.8 centuries per test in the five-year period corresponds fairly accurately to the two centuries by Smith and de Villiers scored in the 2008 Perth test, but it also compares, and this is important, to the only two centuries scored by batsmen in the South African test side all of last year, 2022. Problem was, the two tons scored all of last calendar year, both Sarl Ervier and Carl Verena scoring centuries against New Zealand in Christchurch in March, came in 11 test matches, which evens out to be less than 0.2 centuries a test. You see the problem. Just in case you're thinking that I'm practicing a statistical sleight of hand and you suspect 2022 was an outlier as an exceptionally bad year centuries-wise, let's look at the numbers to widen our comparative net. Take the last five calendar years. In the last five years, 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021 and 2022, in which South Africa have played altogether 39 tests, Protea batsmen have scored only 16 hundreds. This translates to about 0.45 hundreds per test. They scored 6 in 2018, 4 in 2019, 1 in 2020, although in that case the team only played 4 tests because of COVID-19, 3 in 2021 in 6 tests, and of course Ervier's and Verena's 2 last year in the second test in Christchurch. And here's something else worth considering. Six of the 1,600 scored in the last five seasons have been scored by Faf Duplessis, three of them, and Quinton de Kock, three, who are both no longer part of the test system. De Kock, by far the younger of the two when he retired from test cricket, scored six centuries in his 54-test career, while Duplessis scored 10 tons in his 69 tests, three of them against Australia. Their absence from the Proteas, largely due to communication and governance issues, has further hobbled the team's ability to score test centuries. What is it with test centuries? If test cricket is considered to be the ultimate examination of a batsman's prowess, a century is equivalent to passing that examination with flying colours. A test century has everything, watchfulness, self-control, calculated attack, courage, physical and mental stamina, poise. In order to progress along the path towards the Garden of the Hundred, you must face Mitchell Johnson, and you must face him not once, but two or three times across a day's play against balls of varying shine and hardness. The reason for the South Africans' batsmen's inability to score centuries is due to a knot of factors with many strands. Our first-class cricket is poor, which means that centuries scored in provincial cricket aren't reliable yardsticks to the ability to score them in tests. What has also happened in the last five years is that cricket, and this is an international phenomenon and problem, has no discernible centre, meaning it is difficult for a player to know what his priorities are and where best he will serve his career. Take Kajiso Rabada. As South Africa's best and most experienced fast bowler, KG has become wildly inconsistent. He wasn't very good in either England or Australia in recent away series, and in the World T20 in Aussie in October, he took two wickets in four matches at an average of 75.5 runs per wicket. Understandably, he wants to do all things and appear on all stages, 
but Robada, who turns 28 in May, plays too many forms of the game and therefore plays too much. He is not alone. So too does Lungi and Gidi, Aidan Markram, Temba Bavuma and Rassi van Adusen, some of whom are more naturally white ball cricketers, for me and Gidi and van Adusen, than they are test cricketers, which is what I suspect Rabada finally is. This speaks to something else, scale. Compared to English, Australian and Indian cricket, South African player stocks are shallow. This means that too many players play too many formats, both as South African cricketers and as international privateers in competitions like the IPL and the Caribbean Premier League. The problem of too much cricket in too many forms for South Africa's shallow player base appears, however, to have been solved. And it has been solved in a remarkable way. South Africa only plays two tests at home this summer against the West Indies in February and March. The next three test series the Proteas are scheduled to play is in three years' time, in 2026, so the problem is eliminated at a swipe. KG won't have to decide which format to play because that has been decided for him by the administrators, who can make more money out of the sale of white ball broadcast rights and competitions such as the SA20, which means that KG, with a strike rate in tests unparalleled in the modern game, is unlikely to be seen by historians as the stellar cricketer he should be, and will rather be seen as a very special cricketer per se, a subtle but crucial difference. By the end of the decade, Test cricket for South Africa will seem like an endangered species. The great test in Perth in 2008, when Mitchell Johnson was bowling at the speed of light and South Africa chased down 4-14 in their second innings to win, will in cricket terms seem like an eternity away.